0: and welcome to the post-ASCO edition of Sightline's podcast. In this month's podcast we'll be highlighting and discussing hot topics from the ASCO 2023 conference. First off I'd like to introduce myself, Ellie and Data Monitor Healthcare's Oncology team. Millie. Hi. Flora. Hello. And Dana. Hello. Ellie, which data caught call your eye at ASCO this year? So the Phase 3 Duo O trial data I found very interesting. It's investigating INFINZI in combination with platinum-based chemotherapy and bevacizumab as a first-line therapy, followed by maintenance INFINZI, bevacizumab and Limpasa for patients with advanced BRCA world-type um, ovarian cancer, and the trial enrolled 1,400 patients. So it has a complex three-armed sign and includes two settings. So the active cohort comprised of patients treated with chemo and Bev and Infinzi, followed by Bev, Infinzi, with or without lymparza in the maintenance setting. And this was compared against a control cohort of chemotherapy and Bevacizumab, followed by Bev maintenance. Um, The trial in rural bracket negative patients only, which is around 60 percent of patients. And its PFS endpoint was split between two co-primaries, an effect in all comers and also in BRCA negatives, who were homologous recombination deficient positive. Um, So PARP inhibitors, uh, platinum-based chemotherapy and bevacizumab currently dominate the first-line treatment setting of ovarian cancer. Uh, Newly diagnosed advanced ovarian cancer patients would normally be treated with adjuvant or neoadjuvant chemo, um, followed by bevacizumab and or a PARP inhibitor, depending on their BRCA status. And patients with a BRCA mutation or HRD um, positive can receive Limpasa or Limpasa with bevacizumab respectively. Limpasa's label is restricted to the one in three women who present with a BRCA mutation or HRD positive. Those at a BRCA wild type can receive bevacizumab and some may receive maintenance treatment with either rubraca or Zedula, but mostly they receive chemotherapy and BEV as data for PARP inhibitors in this setting have been quite underwhelming. So AstraZeneca is hoping that a label expansion into the first line BRCA wild type market will boost Limpars' treatable patient population and gain Infinsian approval in this indication. So, duo is the first PARP inhibitor, checkpoint inhibitor combination trial to read out, and between 2024 and 2025, a multitude of checkpoint inhibitor, PARP inhibitor combinations are anticipated to enter the first line setting, and this includes abdelvermabaca, trudolimparza, and gemperli and, and zedula. However, the duo regimen is expected to be the first regimen um, approved in this setting. Um, after which, the market will definitely get more competitive. So, immunotherapy has tended not to see positive results in ovarian cancer, and failures include Roche's Imagine 050, um, Merv Pfizer's Javelin Ovarian 100, and Merck's Keynote 100 trials. Um, but in DuoO, the Infinzi and Lympasa combination demonstrated a 37.3 month medium PFS in newly diagnosed HRD positive BRCA wild type patients. And this is a statistically significant and clinically meaningful benefit. Um, over the 23-month median PFS seen with platinum-based chemotherapy and bevacizumab alone. Also, patients treated with Infinzi and parser had a 15% lower risk of progression at 18 months than patients treated with chemo and bevacizumab and a 10% less risk than those treated with the Infinzi combination. So a really important thing to note here is that the median PFS for patients who were treated with chemotherapy, bevacizumab and Infinzi was 24.4 months, which is only a 1.4 month longer PFS um, than that seen with chemotherapy and BEV alone. So this really begs the question, how much benefit did Infinzi add to the BEV, Infinzi and Limpasa regimen? Or is it mostly the effect of Limpasa that we're seeing in these HRD positive patients? Or could it be a synergy between the two? But unfortunately, duo utilised a bevacizumab and chemotherapy comparator arm when a limparza, bevacizumab and chemotherapy comparator arm would have been more reflective of the treatment algorithm for these HRD-positive patients. Um, and it would have allowed us to gauge the benefit of Infinzi in this combination. Therefore, I do wonder if regulation, regulators or physicians will be less willing to prescribe a more complex and costly regimen to these patients if the benefit over chemo, BEV and Limpasa alone may be minimal.
1: If there may be only a small benefit when adding in FIMZ, how do you think the costly and complicated combination will fare for regulatory approval?
0: So I think one of the most important takeaways from these data was that the DUO study is the first study to show benefit in BRCA wild type and HRD negative patients um, against an active comparator arm. As PARP inhibitors have typically shown weak data in this setting, a 20.9-month median PFS was seen when patients with BRCA wild-type um, HRD-negative advanced ovarian cancer were treated with IMFINZ and LIMPASA, which is a 3.5-month benefit over the 17.4-month median PFS seen with chemotherapy and bevacizumab alone in the same patient population. Again, we're unsure what Infinci adds here, as the Infinci Bev and chemo arm actually showed a numerically lower median PFS in chemo and Bev alone. Um, but in the Phase 3 Paola trial, Limpasa plus Bev showed a 16.9 month median PFS in HRD negative patients, um, which was only a 0.9 month benefit over the 16 month median PFS seen with Bevcismab alone and the Phase three Primer trial was against placebo, so a comparison of the benefit is quite difficult to make. But next to test the theory will be Merck's Keylink 001 trial, which tests Catruda um, limpa- followed by Limpasa in the maintenance phase, and like Juro, enrolled only BRCA negative patients. Um, the Athena Combo trial of Obdivo and Rebraca was supposed to have read out by now, but as Clover filed for bankruptcy, data are now expected later in 2024. Also, we have the first trial testing GSK's duelar and Jupareli in combination with platinum chemo in all first-line patients. Um, OS data is also still lacking for duo, um, and we've seen recently in ovarian cancer, PFS data has not always translated into a positive OS readout, um, and this happened in the later lines of treatment, such as in area four which led to the FDA withdrawing labels for all PARP inhibitors in the later treatment settings. Um, So ultimately, some questions still remain, but this is definitely a positive step forward for bringing immunotherapy to ovarian cancer. Updated data from the Phase 3 commands trial were presented at ASCO. Flora, can you give an overview of the results?
2: Yeah, of course. The updated results presented from commands at ASCO detailed the long-awaited numerical data for the trial, following the top-line release in late 2022, which stated the trial had met its primary endpoint. So the study investigates rublozole uh, versus standard of care, Epoetin Alpha, for the treatment of anemia in ESA-naive low-risk MDS patients, uh, which have red blood cell transfusion dependence. So primary endpoint of the trial as RBC transfusion independence for 12 weeks or more with a concurrent mean haemoglobin increase of 1.5 or more grams per litre during weeks 1 to 24. So remarkably, uh, in the data presented at ASCO, the Roblozil treatment arm had nearly double the percentage of patients achieving the primary endpoint compared to the control. So 58.5% of uh, riblozal-treated patients achieved transfusion independence and haemoglobin increase compared to 31.2% of ipoetin-alpha-treated patients. That's a highly significant 27.3% increase. So decrease in transfusion burden is a major treatment goal for low-risk MDS patients um, in hopes of improving quality of life for these patients. So these data presented at ASCO demonstrate Reblusal to have a profoundly significant benefit in enabling more patients to achieve and maintain transfusion independence compared to the current standard of care. And this sets the drug up in good stead for a first line label expansion and the potential to become the new standard of care treatment for anemia in low risk transfusion
0: dependent MDS patients. Does Roblozal look set to address an all-comer low-risk MDS population?
2: Uh, It's a good question, Ellie. Unfortunately, that is where the data misses the mark slightly. So the subgroup analysis um, actually revealed Roblozal's utility to be limited to ring sideroblast positive patients. So looking at Roblozal's effect in patients with and without ring sideroblasts, it seems the huge benefit um, which was observed in primary in achieving the primary endpoint um, is driven solely by RS-positive patients. So rublozal treatment in non-RS-positive patients generated a numerically inferior mean hemoglobin increase compared to a, po- a poetin alpha. So 41% of rublozal-treated RS-negative patients achieved the primary endpoint compared to 46.3% in the control arm. Um, So these results will likely restrict Roblozil treatment to the RS-positive population. Considering Roblozil is currently available only for second-line patients and beyond, these data in general um, can still be considered successful as a whole for the drug as they pave an opportunity for a first-line label expansion. However, With that being said, uh, limitation from an all-comer population does mark a missed uh, lucrative opportunity for the agent.
0: And do you think this will have an impact on the drug's competitive edge?
2: Well, in terms of the current dynamics, it will limit Reblusal's encroachment on the ESA market. Um, So Poetin Alpha and other ESAs are approved regardless of RS status. Uh, So whilst Reblusal can be anticipated to displace ESAs of standard of care off the back of this data um, in RS positive patients, the agent's lack of utility in non-RS positive patients will allow Epoetin alphas share some respite from erosion in this non-overlapping population. Another thing to consider is, of course, the drug's protection from future competitive risk. So class competitor. CARE 050 is being investigated in Phase 2 trial for patients with low-risk MDS. And it's demonstrated uh, early indication of utility regardless of RS status. So at ASH 2022, initial efficacy and safety data were presented from this Phase 3 trial Um, And it was reported that 50% of the valuable RS negative RP2D population achieved transfusion independence for at least eight weeks. So although this data is still immature, if CARE 050 continues to prove clinically beneficial regardless of RS status, uh, then this could mark a key differentiator for the potential latecomer allowing CARE 050 to secure uptake in this non-overlapping population. Entry into the first line all set setting essentially opens the door for CARE 050 to potentially rise to market leader of the SMAD-2-3 inhibitors for low-risk MDF. However, of course, this is all contingent on more mature and potentially later phase data as well.
0: That makes sense. And how were the safety data looking for this presentation of commands?
2: Well, the safety data suggests that riblozal is slightly more toxic and less tolerable compared to poetin alpha, which can be expected of a more potent drug. Uh, There were higher rates of treatment related adverse events. So uh, for riblozal treated patients, that is. So in the riblozal treated arm, uh, 92.1% of patients reported treatment emergent adverse events um, compared to 85.2% in the poetin alpha arm. More patients also discontinued, discontinued treatment due to adverse events uh, whilst on replosal treatment, with 4.5% of replosal treated patients discontinuing therapy due to uh, treatment adverse emergent events, compared to 2.3% in the potent alpha arm. However, that all being said, the rates of grade three uh, and grade four adverse events for heme related TEAs and TEAs of interest such as fatigue, um, are generally comparable between the two arms. So the positive to take away from the safety data is that there are no alarm toxicities associated with reposal treatment. However, quality of life is a key treatment goal for low-risk MDS patients, and a drug's toxicity profile can weigh heavily in on this. It is becoming more standardised for trials in low-risk MDS patients uh, to include quality of life measures as an endpoint Whilst it's not a key endpoint uh, in uh, commands, it is a secondary endpoint. Um, So the European Organisation for Research and Treatment of Cancer Quality of Life questionnaire um, is one of the uh, last secondary endpoints investigated in the trial. So um, once released, this quality of life data will be really useful in terms of people's likely success and uptake um, for first-line low-risk MDS patients, um, especially for physicians, and it will be interesting to see if, it's, uh, if the drug's toxicity profile plays a large role in here.
0: Millie, what were the most interesting abstract presentations you watched at ASCO?
1: So one of the most interesting abstracts um, that I attended was first numerical data from the phase three Natalie trial of Cascali in the adjuvant setting in HR positive HER2 negative breast cancer. So the adjuvant setting um, in this indication is largely treated with generic chemotherapies and endocrine therapies. There's currently one branded CDK4-6 inhibitor already approved here, which is Eli Lilly's Visenio, um, and it's approved for the high-risk, node-positive subpopulation in the adjuvant setting. So... The NASALI trial looked at Novartis' CDK4-6 inhibitor Kisqali, in combination with endocrine therapy in a slightly wider adjuvant population. So they targeted both pre and post menopausal women. They targeted node negative and node positive um, patients um, and included both stage three and stage two patients. Um, and the enrollment reached 15,101 patients. So it was a really big trial. Um, And the comparator arm was endocrine therapy alone, so being compared to Cascali plus endocrine therapy. Um, However, it is important to note that patients with no node involvement and lower risk will have lower rates of treatment. So the high risk node positive subpopulation um, that Visenio is approved in is still really key. Um, And both Visenio and Cascali are already approved in the metastatic setting and compete fiercely, uh, with Cascali generally having higher market share than Visenio. So um, it was found that Cascali plus endocrine therapy um, overall, across all of the subgroups mentioned, lowered the risk of recurrence by 25.2% compared to endocrine therapy alone. So this was a really positive result. Um, the largest decrease in risk of recurrence was in node-negative disease, where it decreased by 37 percent, um, and the smallest decrease in risk of recurrence was in postmenopausal women, where it decreased by 21.9 percent, which is still a meaningful decrease. Um, in comparison, in the Phase three Monarchy trial, uh, where vasenia was investigated in the adjuvant setting, uh, Visenya was found to decrease the risk of recurrence by 34.1 percent in these high-risk, node-positive patients. So, although Cascali um, in the NASTY trial didn't provide information on patients stratified by risk group, the node-positive patients decreased the risk um, had a decreased risk of recurrence um, by 23%. So. Although this decrease is still positive and cross-trial comparisons, of course, can be accurate, it may be that Fisenio is still favoured, at least in the high-risk and node positive setting, um, as it has shown a larger decrease in risk of recurrence. Uh, However, Cascali's OS is actually tracking stronger, although the data for both of the agents is not yet mature. Um, Cascali's OS HR was 0.759 compared to um, an OSHR of 0.929 for Visenio as per SABSis 2022 data. So again, it's not mature OS, but um, it is an interesting thing to note and uh, could lead to an early indication in which agent might um, be preferred.
0: And in your opinion, how are the safety data looking between the two agents?
1: So the safety comparisons between Cascali and Visenya are really interesting. They're generally very comparable. Um, They each have their own pros and cons. Uh, Visenio is associated with gastrointestinal adverse events, uh, with Cascali you, is associated with EKG monitoring and um, in the NASTY trial, it had very high rates of neutropenia. Uh, 43.8% of patients had a grade three or above adverse event involving neutropenia, so this was quite high. Um. One thing to note is that in Nathalie, patients were given 400 milligrams of Cascali instead of 600 milligrams, which is the dose given in the metastatic setting um, in order to make it more tolerable. So in Natalie, one percent of patients had QT interval prolongation, which is less than the three percent seen in the Mona Lisa 2 study where Cascali was investigated in the metastatic setting. So this might have been because um, of this decreased dose. So it was more tolerable uh, than in the metastatic setting. Both um, gastrointestinal adverse events and EKG uh, monitoring Um, involvement are going to be more burdensome depending on the patient's lifestyle and also the physician's preference of the two drugs. So for example the discussant at ASCO mentioned if a a patient was a taxi driver, gastrointestinal issues are going to be much more of an issue than regularly scheduled EKG monitoring sessions as there might not always be a bathroom available um, to them. Um, familiarity is also going to be really key here. Uh, personal experience of the two drugs in the metastatic setting could tip the scales one way or the other. Cascali had far higher use in the metastatic setting over Visenio, so it might have an advantage. Um, and it also had an OS survival benefit uh, in the metastatic setting when Visenio did not, so that has boosted its reputation in the metastatic setting. And as I mentioned in the previous slide, Cascali's OS is tracking better right now, again not mature, but this could still reinforce the idea that Cascali is the more efficacious of the two, as OS is the gold standard of endpoints in oncology. And Visenya's bigger decrease in risk of recurrence will be overshadowed. However, the longer it takes for Cascali to gain an approval and the longer it takes for OS data to be released um, gives a longer period of time for Eli Lilly to market Visenya and cement physician familiarity, which will make it more difficult to overturn its dominance if and when approval and OS data for Cascali are released. So, looking to the future, I think either way, an approval for Cascali is going to boost its sales to multi-billion dollars. Um, It made $1.231 billion last year. So analyst estimates are currently really varying, but highest estimates guess that yearly revenues could reach $7 billion. Um, And This is because the early stage setting is where the majority of HR positive, HER2 negative breast cancers lie Um, and HR positive, HER2 negative breast cancer is the most common type of breast cancer of the three subtypes with 87.2 new cases per 100,000 women seen per year. Um, even in a small, even a small market share we will see massive profits just due to the size of this patient population. Um, it's also likely Cascali will gain a wider approval than Visenio, um, although node negative low risk patients will be treated at far lower rates. Um, and in addition to this, Cascali's duration of treatment was three years, whereas Visenio's was two years. So this is an extra year essentially of sales, um, which will increase profits a lot. However, on the other side of this, increased treatment may lead to more safety concerns and discontinuations. Um, But overall, I'm really looking forward to seeing what's going to happen in Cascali's future and how the two agents might compete. And
0: were there any other abstracts you wanted to mention, Millie?
1: Yes, so I really wanted to mention um, a fa- the phase two Keynote B61 trial, which was a slightly smaller trial, but um, it was had really interesting data. So it was one of the only trials right now, which is targeting non-clear cell RCC. Um, KOLs have repeatedly told us that non-clear cell RCC is really under research, which is likely because it's more rare than clear cell RCC. So approximately 75% of RCC cases are clear cell, leaving 25% of cases being non-clear cell. Um, the standard of care right now for non-clear cell is cabomatics, um, which was approved based on clear cell data, uh, or also Sutin is um Recommended, which is an older, more outdated drug. And the third recommended option, um, as per the NCCN, is to enter a clinical trial, although there are some other alternative regimens listed in the other recommended regimens category. Uh, So this leaves a really large area of unmet need in 25% of RCC patients, which is a relatively substantial subset of RCC patients. And although the Keytruda plus lymphema regimen is one of the standards of care in metastatic clear cell RCC, it has not had any use in the non-clear cell patient segment as of yet, and research has been really limited. So the data was investigating Keytruda plus lenvima in non-clear cell metastatic RCC, um, and it showed really good data. It had the combination had a PFS of 17.9 months, and OS wasn't reached after a follow up of 14.9 months, uh, and the objective response rate was 49%. So in comparison, non-clear cell RCC patients treated with carbometrics um, had an objective response rate of 27 percent, a PFS of seven months and an OS of 12 months. So Keytruda and BMO have really improved on this. Obviously, this trial is early stage and in a relatively smaller patient population, but still a large improvement. Furthermore, in the trial, um, the Quintruder-Lenvima-treated arm um, found that 51% of patients had a treatment-related adverse event. However, no grade information or type of adverse event information was released, so that will be something we will have to analyse in more detail in the future. However, it's unlikely to be too much of an issue considering the area of unmet need that this could address.
0: And were all non clear cell RCC histologies included in this trial or only a few?
1: So the trial included papillary, chromophore, translocation, unclassified, and other histologies. So papillary RCC is the second most common histology after clear cell. Uh, it represents approximately 15 to 20% of RCC cases. Chromophore uh, cases are approximately 5% of RCC cases, and translocation is the most rare. Uh, it comprises 1 to 4% of adult cases and is more common in childhood RCC cases. Uh, most participants in the study had papillary histology, which is in line with the real world epi patterns. Um, and the regimen was found to be most effective in the translocation cohort with objective response rates of 67%. But this is likely skewed by the small patient population of six patients. The objective response rate was lowest in chromophore histology. Uh, 28% in 29 patients but due to lack of other options it will still likely get use in these patients. In papillary um, the objective response rate was 54% so still very positive data, Um, the majority of these were partial responses, 45% of these were partial responses. Um, but, yeah, overall, very positive data. And also, it just represents an increase in research in this underrepresented patient group, which really needed to be done. Um, and now they'll need to investigate into a larger patient population in a phase three trial to confirm these findings and finally find effective therapies for non clear cell RCC patients. Ellie, were there any
0: other results that interested you? Yeah, the phase three indigo study, which is investigating voracitinib, um, an investigational oral selective and highly brain penetrant um, dual inhibitor of mutant isocitrate dehydrogenase IDH1 um, and 2 enzymes in patients with residual or recurrent IDH1 or 2 mutant low-grade glioma. Um, Grade 2 gliomas are progressive malignant brain tumours with a poor prognosis, and the standard treatment of low-grade um, gliomas includes tumour resection, followed by radiation and chemotherapy as appropriate. But typically, patients with high-grade disease are treated with pharmacological therapies, and patients with low-grade disease undergo, undergo surveillance, as often chemotherapy and radiotherapy treatment toxicities affect their quality of life. But Any of these treatments are not curative and due to the infiltrative nature of glioma, um, fully removing all cancer cells through surgery is extremely difficult, meaning most patients treated with surgery experience disease recurrence and progression to a higher grade tumour. Moreover, low grade glioma patients have a five year survival rate of 40 to 50 percent, but that then goes down if tumours have IDH mutations. This market isn't as large as some of the other markets we've talked about. Approximately 11,000 low-grade glioma patients are diagnosed annually in the US and EU, and approximately 80% of these have an IDH mutation. The updated numerical results at ASCO for voracidinib are encouraging for a patient population with little treatment options. In indigo, uh, voracidinib significantly improved PFS compared to placebo. The 27.7-month PFS seen in the vorasidenib arm was a near 2.5-fold increase um, over the 11.1-month PFS seen in the placebo arm, demonstrating a impressive 61% reduction in the risk of recurrence or death compared to placebo. Furthermore, um, vorasidenib also showed a significant benefit in the time-to-next intervention um, endpoint over placebo. The medium time to next intervention for patients who received placebo was 17.8 months and was not reached in the voracidinib arm but voracidinib reduced the risk of needing a subsequent treatment intervention by 74% compared to placebo and 83% of patients had not received another intervention in 24 months. And were these data all positive? Well, uh, voracidinib's therapeutic effects were achieved at the expense of nearly one in 10 patients, uh, 9.6% of patients on the drug experiencing a grade three or higher alanine aminotransferase increase. Um, And this was also followed by aspartate aminotransferase increases in 4% of patients. Interestingly, there were no cases of ALT or AST elevations in the placebo group. Um, And in two patients, the elevations were sufficiently severe to be considered potentially life-threatening. However, these adverse events um, are also lesser than those seen with chemotherapy or radiotherapy treatment, which are both notoriously toxic. Overall, voracidinib was well tolerated with patients reporting fatigue, headache, diarrhoea and nausea. Um, And the liver risks will probably be balanced out by the lack of treatment options for these low-grade glioma patients. Nevertheless, the liver toxicity profile is likely to be something the regulators take time to consider. And lastly, Dana, what abstracts caught your attention at ASCO?
3: Um, Two in particular uh, pertaining to the, the treatment of colorectal cancer caught my eye. So one of them Uh, was a series of abstracts from the FRESCO-2 trial. Um, The FRESCO-2 trial is um, a global phase three study of frequentinib um, targeting refractory metastatic colorectal cancer patients. Um, So one of the abstracts was looking at subgroup analysis of safety and efficacy uh, by number and types of prior lines of treatment. And one of them was looking at the uh, safety and tolerability Uh, so adverse events of special interest in the FRESCO-2 trial. So fruquintinib is a relatively recent addition to the CRC uh, pipeline. It's a novel uh, VEGFR inhibitor. Developed by Hutchmed. It's already approved in China uh, under the the brand name Alienate. And last time we saw data from the Fresco 2 trial was around September time, 2022. Um, So, data from the Fresco 2 trial was uh, was presented at ESMO 2022. And we saw a median, uh, after a median follow up of uh, around 11 months uh frequently uh, led to a median os of 7.4 months uh compared to the 4.8 months of the um, of the comparator arm and a median pfs of 3.7 months so this is actually really important uh, so these are uh really good data they are very clinically clinically meaningful improvements um especially if, uh, if in a, such a pretreated treated uh, population. So this is a population of high mid need, they're heavily pre-treated um, and they looked at RAS, BRAF mutant and DMMR and MSI high CRC patients the the numerical data presented at ASCO 2023, so it was an update. Uh, they showed that frequentinib led to mPFS values that ranged between 3.4 and 3.7 months. So to put this into perspective, uh, the standard of care in in that setting, uh, lonsez, led to a median PFS of two months in uh, its recourse trial. Uh, and that was in patients who had received at least two prior lines of therapy, uh, while Stevarga uh, led to a median PFS of just 1.9 months in the correct trial. So for something like Frequentinib, uh, yielding an MPFS of 3.7 is, is significant. With regards to the, the safety and tolerability in the Fresca 2 trial, so uh before i touch upon the fresco 2 trial it's worth noting here that the the trial that got the the, the drug approved in china namely fresco uh, reported high rates of adverse events as well as an increased, increased rates rate in hospitalization uh, and that was due to frequentinib related serious adverse events so most of the uh, the patients treated with um with frequentinib experienced um, drug-related adverse events, Um, and there were significantly more treatment emergent um, events in the frequentinib arm. So we're looking at 80.7% of patients versus 53% in the comparator arm. Um, there were um, grade three and higher hypertension, as well as uh, grade three palmar plantar erythroid dysthesia, so that's the PPE. Nine um, percent of patients suffered for, for the, from from this. This is a particular concern, um, given the, the patient population targeted. PPE and hypertension can be debilitating. Uh, they can lead to treatment discontinuation. Um, so, looking at the Fresco trial um, in, in China, also reported high rates of uh, hypertension and PBE. The drug's promising efficacy, however, in a patient population with such significant unmet need could push these issues past uh, regulatory uh, approval hurdles. Um, and If the drug received regulatory approval, uh, it remains to be seen, however, whether the efficacy benefits will be enough to convince physicians to to take on the risks of treatment related adverse events. It's worth noting here, however, is uh, frequentinib is under priority review in the US. Uh, It has a PDUFA date set for the 30th of November in uh, 2023. And in Europe, uh, the EMA uh, in June uh, this year, so just after ASCO, uh, the EMA has validated and accepted a marketing authorization application for priority review uh, for frequently for previously treated uh, metastatic CRC, colorectal cancer. So um, it will be interesting to see um, whether the drug actually gets approved in these um, two geographies. Um, another drug that I wanted to, to mention um, is nher 2 so We've been hearing more and more about nher 2 um, uh, There were a series of abstracts presented at um, ASCO 2023 focused on Inher2. Um, and they demonstrated the drug's meaningful and durable responses in HER2-positive um, solid tumours. Um, there was data from the Destiny PAN Tumor 2 phase uh, 2 trial. Um, so that data showed broad clinical activity across uh, multiple HER2-positive advanced solid tumours, um, and it was tested across a, a variety of, of indications, uh, included bladder, biliary tract cancer, cervical cancer, endometrial, ovarian and pancreatic. But the, the data that I wanted to focus um, today is on um, in HER2 in colorectal cancer. Um, so um, in HER2, this is Daiichi's uh, HER2 targeted antibody drug conjugate, uh, is in phase two trials for second line and later metastatic colorectal cancer. Interestingly, the drug is included off-label in the NCCN's recommendations for RASB-RAF wild-type HER2-amplified metastatic colorectal cancer, uh, and that's across metastatic lines of therapy. Um, The NCCN included the the recommendation uh, after the drug demonstrated really impressive efficacy, reasonable safety, uh, in a phase two trial, and that's the DESTINY CRC01 trial. Um, there's no official FDA approval, uh, but obviously having this recommendation, positions in her to quite well, um, and it the drug is waiting confirmatory results from the phase two DESTINY CRC02 trial. So this is uh, the data that was presented at ASCO, and um so the the, the the trial is a global randomized two-arm uh, multi uh, center phase two trial. Uh it's looking at two doses of NHER2 in patients with locally advanced unresectable metastatic HER2-positive colorectal cancer, um BRAF wild type or RAS wild type. Um so in in the destiny CRCO2 um data presented at ASCO, uh, we saw that the objective response rate uh, was lower than the the original ORR that we saw initially in the DESTINY CRC-01 trial. Um, It's still a positive result for nher 2 mostly because these patients had received a median of three prior therapy. Um, This, however, is not that much different from all the other HERG uh, targeted agents that are um, also looking to, to enter the CRCs uh, space. So for comparison, we have to Kaiser's uh, overall response rate from the Mountaineer phase two trial, and that was 38 percent with 3.6 complete responses, um, while uh, trastuzumab in combination with projeta, uh, and trastuzumab in combination with lapatinib. Uh, led to overall responses of uh, around 32 and 30 resp- percent, respectively. And that data comes from the Heracles and the MyPathway trial. Uh, what really caught my eye is uh, in her to safety and tolerability data. And it could highlight the potentially problematic incidence of drug related interstitial lung disease. So ILD. Um, features in, in HER2's black box warning uh, for the drug's approved indications. It is a serious side effect, uh, which could negatively impact uptake in CRC, especially because this is such a heavily protreated uh, metastatic population. Um, the, the HER2 positive uh, CRC population makes up less than 5% of the, the overall population, we already have Trastuzumab, uh, uh, either as Herceptin or biosimilars. Uh, we also have Projeta, recommended by the NCCN guidelines uh, for off-label use. Tukaisa was recently approved by the FDA for the same population. So it remains to be seen, uh, if uh, officially approved, whether in Inherto will manage to... Um, get a grip on, on this tiny 5% population. Um, but nevertheless, uh, these are positive results. They um, sort of reinforce and hurt position in the NCCM guidelines. Uh, and we're now awaiting uh, to see whether regulatory approval will follow.
0: Thanks, Donna. And that concludes our post-ASCO podcast. Thanks for listening, everyone. Goodbye.